Welcome to Say That, the podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us this week is Jed Brewer. Well, hello. Joining us from a mobile recording setup, we can't say anything more, is Lee Younger. <laughs> Coming to you from the field. I'm here. That's right. See, in Ukraine, we don't know. Is he in, wherever he is, is in the front seat of a very well-appointed Honda Accord. So if you see oh. one of those rolling through the background... Of some war what? footage, you'll know that that's our intrepid reporter Lee Younger on the scene. It's it's either that or I'm actually looking for Carmen San Diego, and s- people of a certain age will get that joke. Where in the world is she, Lee? Uh, well, sh- she's not at this high school football stadium. I'll tell you that. Aha! <laughs> Somebody mark that off. <laughs> also, how far out are we from the uh, Zack Snyder esque gritty Carmen San Diego reboot, where she's on the <laughs> run for having been an assassin? <laughs> and it's like the the scene from the first Bourne movie where they he claps and says, "Oh my God, that's Jason Bourne!" Just they the silence go down. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Sting <laughs> credits. Fantastic. The thing that I most want out of that movie is Rockapella's Carmen San Diego theme done a cappella, but then remixed by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Wow, where it's dude. these haunting, distorted synths over the original Rockapella performance. Where in the world is... Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. And to Lee's original point, if the phrase Rockapella's Carmen Sandiego theme launched something in your brain that now can't be moved, I can target your age to about an eight-year window yes. and <laughs> how often your uh, third-grade social studies teacher was out that year yeah, yeah that's, that's <laughs> exactly right. crt tv kick off some carmen <laughs> san diego reruns yeah that you know i i often ask people you know kind of tell me about one of your favorite concerts that you've been to or tell me about the one that you feel most proud of in terms of like you know your street cred and one for me is a little bit before covid i actually got to see rockapella perform live there's a little nice. college near here that hosts a lot of concerts and the coolest thing, they obviously, they, they did the Carmen San Diego theme, but everything was unamplified except that they brought in these huge subwoofers for their vocal percussion so that wow. the guy doing the, you know, mm, sounds like you felt that stuff in your chest. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of the venue person getting the Rockapella writer and it's like, yeah, yeah LaCroix, cucumber slices, this all standard, the biggest bass amp you have. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Wow. So we've got uh, we've got the normal shenanigans. We've got some great questions from you, the audience. We've got an emergency that is an emergency. But first, uh, because this is a question that's apparently you can ask people, I just want to uh, put forth my two co-hosts. Guys, if you had to rank your the strength of your faith on a 1 to 10, how would you be feeling this week? The strength mm. of my faith. This was, this was active, asked of a Supreme Court nominee recently. So really? How would you rate how important your faith or how good your faith is from one to ten? So apparently that's the thing we can do now. Wow. I mean, oh. I felt so uncomfortable when you asked me that, and, and you weren't I'm even on television. That's the design of the question. <laughs> Maybe you know some people would look at the uh, the faith that Jesus describes in the New Testament as full of mystery, and I do believe and help my unbelief and. You know, when I'm weak, I'm strong and all that. But some people, apparently you can break it down to a nice digital system. Yeah, That's one way to go. Yeah. Wow. If, if I recall correctly, Jesus told his disciples that they had no faith at all and then proceeded to illustrate that point by saying, if you even had faith as small as a mustard seed, you could basically do anything. 
So, you know, think about that. I love that we've gone from that to on a one to 10 scale, describe the strength of your faith. But- yeah. Yeah. I do like that. That's a great point. Cause it would have been strange in a different way, but more biblically accurate. If, uh, said Senator had said, uh, judge Brown, what kind of seed do you think your faith is currently? Oh, that's oh. very good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Feel, feel free. Wow. Youth group leaders of the world. Use that as an icebreaker. Really creep everybody out. (laughs) Well, speaking of creeping everybody out, I'm forced to declare, and who thought this was a good idea? Emergency. Oh! Which is the the substrata of a lot of emergencies, but this one's got it in spades. I read a headline from ChristianityToday.com, who we'll get to later, um, but this (laughs) is a headline from uh, March the 11th, here in 2022. $100 $100 million ad campaign aims to make Jesus the, quote, biggest brand in your city. Okay. Uh, There's a lot going on there. Um, I, I, I'm sure in whatever weird meeting this happened in, somebody <laughs> thought make, be, make Jesus the biggest brand in your city was a great idea. And the fact that that didn't set off any alarm bells, because, you know, presumably if you're if you're, which they are, Christians launching this, you know, the Prince of Peace, uh, right? Very God, very God of very God, Light of Lights, our Savior, you know, the Lamb of God, these kind of things. Brand, you said, but what's the brand? <laughs> and that's something you ask about sneakers, and you did an actual sacrilege there. Yeah, you did a sacrilege. <laughs> <laughs> I know it didn't feel like it in the moment because you weren't like, you know, sacrificing a goat or whatever. But you did. Super did. Well, there's a line in here that says, it's this tension between selling and converting that prompts some Christians to object to deploying business strategies in church or using the secular marketing playbook to promote Christianity. Wait, which Christians are are struggling to stop this? Because it seems like a lot of them are into deploying the business business strategies. Yeah, that's like when you hear the uh, to go take it back to the political realm for a second. Not in policy, you hear like, "Well, there's there's a real tension inside this party about which way they're going to go." And you look at what they do and be like, "Where is this tension?" Because it seems like yeah. this tension has been settled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, in the spirit of branding, right? So, like, you know, in, in the media world, people talk about the idea of a Q rating, right? And that basically is meant to be a measure of both the popularity and the appeal of a person or a brand. And here's the thing about Jesus is, uh, uh, was I'm sorry, the familiarity and the appeal. Like, everyone's familiar. There's almost no one in the United States that has not heard of Jesus. Right. We, we've all heard. The issue you might be struggling with would be the appeal. And why do you think that the Jesus brand might be struggling on the appeal Mm. side of things. Like what could be going on that's adjacent to that brand that would make people not want to be a part of it. I can't think of anything at all, particularly over the, I don't know, last five years. Mm. Well, Jed, I believe the answer you're looking for is the lack of a hundred million dollar advertising budget. And on that, I have good news. Oh, wow. I, that's very surprising. Go on. So uh, this whole thing has been launched by a thing uh, called He Gets Us, which is the, the theme of the ads. Mm. But uh, so it's a bunch of digital marketing people got together, including 
Uh, Haley Viturus, former social media manager for Saddleback Church, who now mm. runs the form the firm Digifora with partner Justin Brackett, former marketing consultant for Lakewood Church. Mm. Oh, so Saddleback, which was, is Rick Warren's uh, mega church out there in California, and Lakewood, which you may better known as uh, the place where the walls are filled with cash and the robot cyborgs <laughs> are on stage. From our own, our friend Joel Osteen, the two people who were in charge of digital marketing for those two things uh, got together and kind of Voltron like formed to make something <laughs> exponentially worse. Because <laughs> say what you will about Saddleback and Lakewood, and we say a lot, they occasionally do helpful things, if almost by accident. The fact that yeah. they have a building. And they're in a town, they will occasionally do, you know, a coat drive or yeah. a Thanksgiving meal or host a thing at a conference where somebody actually gets helped. They did a charity. Yeah. Whether they meant to or not, they helped someone. <laughs> Oops, we helped someone. <laughs> then you've got $100 million on an ad campaign meant to push people to a website that just says, he gets us. And has some some nice black and white pictures, and what I'm going to call a fairly okay read on some Jesusy stuff. Basically, if you turned, uh, you know, he he was tempted in every way, and you know that, and turned that into an infinite scroll website with lots of picture black and white pictures of people in beanies. That's that's what you would get. <laughs> well, you know, the good news about this is that it perfectly it perfectly lines up with that really famous scripture where Jesus told his disciples, um, they will know you are my disciples by the bottom line of your advertising budget. That's right. Oh yeah. You gotta have your ROI, and, you gotta have a conversion rate, you gotta have a click through yeah. rate. And after after he rose from the dead before he ascended to the father, he very famously told them, um, billboards will be my witness in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. He said, go Just like that. make lookalike audience profiles among the nations. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, here's, here's the sentence that broke me, which I like to, I like to, whenever we read through an article on the show, I like to keep a running tally of that because a uh, you, dear listener may have uh, heard before us mention uh, the death of irony, which you know, we, we all have a hypocritical uh, bent, and obviously there's a lot going on. When somebody says one thing, it does another. And there's some of that that's self-serving. There's some of that that is just par for the course. But then there's the one that just makes you go, you could have called that something different, and this would be less horrifying. And this is the point where I get to this in uh, this Christianity Today article. The $100 million for He Gets Us comes from the Servant Christian Foundation. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> a nonprofit backed by a Christian donor advised fund called The Signatory. Ah. <laughs> Both declined to name donors who helped envision and pay for He Gets Us, who want to remain anonymous. I'm sure they want to remain anonymous for very uh, pray in your closet, uh, just humility reasons. Right. You, you, your wealth, your, Christ, your evangelical wealth management fund called the signatory which 
sounds like a Templar cult that you would fight in Assassin's yep. Creed. Yep. <laughs> um, started something called the Servant Christian Foundation, where their service was to pay $100 million for online ads to a website. Well, here's here's a fun thing. So I've been doing a little math as we've been sitting here, a little, a little Googling, a little calculatoring. So that $100 million, I'm not making this up, could end about 1% of all homelessness in the United States. Sure. Or could cancel about 1% of all medical debt in the United States. Sure. You could do either of those things. Those might increase the appeal, going back to the Q rating, of the Jesus brand. Mm. Jed, you've you've done an amazing thing there, which is you've depressed me coming and going. Because yes, <laughs> this money could have been used towards either one of those good causes that shouldn't exist in a just society. There should not be a billion dollars worth of medical debt or a billion dollars worth of homelessness. Right. But you could have helped. And instead you yeah. did this. And you did this very intentionally. Last year, the Servant Christian Foundation approached uh, somebody, former chief creative officer at Haven, whatever, concerned that too many young Americans were leaving Christianity and that more people were growing hostile toward faith. Their idea, a national media blitz for Jesus at a scale that no single church could afford. Right I mean, on. That, I love that nobody at any point thought, what if we just like loved our neighbor? Lee, I hear you, and I just want to interject because I think this is important. My neighbor's a jerk. Okay, so forget that guy. What else you got? Oh, my word. Haven, which has run ad campaigns for Christian brands like Focus on the Family, Alliance Defending Freedom, and American Bible Society, prepare yourselves for this, came up with, to put it in marketing terms, a problem statement that their campaign would answer. How did the world's greatest love story in Jesus become known as a hate group? How indeed? Ask the people who ran ad campaigns. For focus on the family. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's going great. It's going great. I don't want to oversimplify things, but the call is coming from inside the house there, Christian digital marketing firm. <laughs> yeah. And, and folks listening to this, you can't see our faces, which is too bad because we really had a Simpsons esque look. You can see the moment his heart broke yeah. moment on Matt's face <laughs> during that spiel. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely the Ralph Wiggum of of this particular <laughs> run out here. You can see the the moment where my where my uh my brain rips into but uh yeah, don't do that. I think would be the main the main takeaway. That's not helping. Not not a good thing to do. Also, just from a, like we've we I think these guys have very well covered the uh the insane spiritual aspect of this, but here's, here's another thing. Would you say that anything that's ever had an advertise, what could be described as an advertising blitz has made you feel better about that product? Well, that's, that's the other side of this. Take all the Jesus stuff away. Take all the problems with modern Christianity away. Take, take all of that stuff, the failures of people that have had a voice in Christianity, take all of that, strip all of that away. And let's just look at the fact that uh, the flaw in the thinking that anyone, anyone likes digital ads. Yep. No one does. We're all trying to get rid of digital ads all the time, 
in every possible way. Yep. And the only thing people hate more than digital ads is digital ads they have to see constantly. Yeah. Or any other ads. There was was an Applebee's ad featuring a song that went viral called Fancy Like. You probably know it. If you tried to watch any college or professional sports in the last season, (laughs) because, man, they played that thing two times an ad break. And it didn't make me think, you know what? I could go for one of those Oreo lava cakes. It made me think if I ever run across an Applebee's, I'm going to smash the window in. Yes. (laughs) Because now this is dug in my brain. So. And dear listener, Matt is not a violent man. No, that's uh, normally you have to like, you know, impugn or try to, to hurt emotionally or physically someone I love. Or you have to play the same 15 seconds of a god-awful pop country song that's literally (laughs) about Applebee's at every commercial break when I'm just trying to watch Central Michigan (laughs) versus Akron at 3.30 on a Saturday because I have a problem. (laughs) I don't like you being the soundtrack to my problem. And uh, in the same way, I don't think... uh, trying to show people an ad about Jesus every time they just want to watch a YouTube video is going to help much less when you're very clear that you spent a hundred million dollars doing it. You could, you know, we, this, and we'll, we'll leave on this point. We joke a lot about the terrible Christian movies and that's, that's true. You could have made like an Avengers level movie. For that much yeah. money. Yeah. And put it out. Wow. You could have hired the best Hollywood screenwriters, real actors. You could have put wow. a little message in there. Yeah, you could have. For the same amount of money. But you did this. And that's a choice. And uh, it's a choice that we we don't celebrate. We don't really respect, but we could we can't stop you. That's that's as much as we can go to. That's right. <laughs> so what we have to do is declare emergency off and pray. The fact that you, dear listener, have heard this uh, advertising campaign referenced on your probably on your smartphone several times does not mean that it starts coming up because I don't know how that works, but I, I really hope that doesn't happen. And if it does, we apologize. Yes. <laughs> on that note, we will move on to our first question. It comes in. If you have a question for us, you can handle this all the way to the end, or you can scroll into your episode description, click the links you find there to our email and our inbox. First question comes in and says, How do I deal with someone who plays the victim? I'm huge on validating people, but this feels like a tricky scenario. I want them to feel validated and cared for and loved, but I do not want to play into any form of toxicity, victim mentality, or pity party. I feel like validating the feelings would communicate to them that the things they're saying and the way they're acting is okay and understandable, and I don't believe it is. Validating them on something this untrue feels toxic on its own. And a very, a very good question. I think a very cool thing. And um, we, we, we've kind of gone and run of these lately, and they're amazing questions on a variety of topics of there's a thing that is generally good, validating people, uh, in, in being empathetic, listening. But then there's some extreme scenarios or some types of scenarios where we really do have to apply something like that with maybe a little bit more of a, a surgical precision than we thought we might. And Jed, as far as this tension between I want to validate somebody's feelings, but I don't want to validate the thing that in their mind is generating those feelings, how do we start to approach something like that? Well, 
It's a great question. Let me give the caveat of, you know, I'm not a therapist or a counselor, so this is just a layperson's perspective. I think that there's a huge difference between observations and conclusions. Um, I think that when you talk to people who are going through a hard time, often their observations are generally accurate. Not every one of them um, and not, you know, uh, to every extent, but like, you know, a lot of the observations will be thing X sucks and thing Y sucks and thing Z sucks. And here's the thing that's, that's accurate. You know, it's, uh, you know, they, they might kind of lump something in there. That's, you know, maybe not quite as strong of an argument, but I think most people's observations tend to have a lot of truth to them, even if it's not a hundred percent, but that's hugely different from their conclusions. The thing that comes on the other side of therefore, like, Thing X and thing Y and thing Z, those all suck. Those are my observations. Therefore, I believe that I should undertake course ABC in order to do something. Right. And I think that's usually where we, where we run into trouble, right? So um, I think one of the things that's important to note is that you can validate the stuff that is true and accurate without supporting the stuff that isn't, right? You can, you can say to your friend, um, uh, your the observations that you are describing are accurate and the feelings that you have about them make total sense. I'm not so sure about your therefore. I'm not so sure about the conclusion. Um, it, it makes sense that you would land on that conclusion, but I'm not so sure about it. But the observations definitely make sense. So I think I think that is where I would start. I would also note it really depends. And we talk a lot about the idea of, you know, are people actually looking for your input? Are people actually looking for you to weigh in? And let's suppose for a second that you have a, a friend or, or a relationship where they are, like they are inviting you to, you know, to weigh in and offer perspective. Giving people the gift of clarity is really important. It is a great gift and a really, really beautiful thing. And I know for me, when I'm going through a rough time, it's easy for me to get into a place where my observations and my conclusions are all swimming together. It's all just one pool of of my feelings. And if I've invited someone, you know, kind of into that situation to, to weigh in on it, having someone who can say, Hey, these parts you're definitely right about this other thing. I'm, I'm not sure about that. To me, that's actually hugely helpful. And I think that it can, you know, under the right circumstances be helpful to the people that you know, as well. I think that's a really great point and a great place to start. Leah, I'd love you to pick us up there because I think this can go in a couple of ways. There's scenarios a, a bit like what Jed is laying out here where the the pity party is based in someone's own emotions. So they are observing a, a, a realistic portrayal of the world and just kind of swimming in some, some not great uh, or accurate conclusions. There's also a, a manipulative type of pity party. There's a kind of, um, someone who's uh, stuck in a certain thing is, Oh, well you just hate me because da, 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 da. And like, okay, your feeling is an observation and uh, something happened. You feel bad about it. That's, you know, that's everybody's right. But in the sense of those uh, observations and conclusions swimming together, sometimes in a, in a toxic way that can start earlier. So, but I love what right. Jed's talking about, about input there. Cause might that be a decent way, not only to help the situation if it's good, but to suss out what we're dealing with if we're not sure. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, it, it can be difficult to, to understand where you are when you're in those conversations. And sometimes it can be difficult 
to to know what's this person's goal. I like that that you point out that sometimes people actually can be manipulative about that. Sometimes they're aware of it, and probably sometimes their defense in their defensiveness, they're not really aware of it. They're really just kind of trying to make themselves feel better. Um, but that can be a manipulative thing, uh, you know, to to whomever they're talking to. And I think it's a really good. I, I think you keeping your head about the stuff that Jed was just talking about is a really good way to to know where you are in the situation. You know, uh, like that thing that Jed said about the difference between the, you know, the, what was the specific word you used, Jed? You used conclusions and observations. That's uh, right. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. keeping that, Keeping that thing in your head, especially when you're going into a conversation with someone who has this tendency, I think is a really important thing. I also would encourage you that in certain relationships, especially if you are being kind of asked to weigh in at some level or they're involving you to a certain extent to where you're going to have to, you're going to have to say something back, um, that there is a there is this really cool art to being able to to push back on somebody without calling them out. Yep. And I, and it's a it's a thing that you don't see modeled a lot in you don't see it modeled a lot in like TV shows and the kinds of arguments that happen in movies and the kinds of conversations or conflict that happen in movies. But with certain people in life, I've actually seen it done really really well. Uh, a couple of examples, actually one is uh, the the guy that I've been working with for 20 years does this really well. And also, I would actually say, also Jed does this really well. And and not just about things like, you know, like uh, whatever, victimhood or something. He'll just do it about like, like uh, you know, we've worked on music stuff together for a long time. And I'll talk about an idea for a song I'm working on. And, and he'll say, okay, I hear that. That's a That's a really cool idea. Are you open to some pushback on one part of it? And then, and all of a sudden I feel validated in the, and where I've gone in the conversation, and now I do feel open to hear something about one little piece of it. And so I'd say all that to say this. There is a way to validate the person to tell them that you love them and that you're sorry for the thing that they're, that, that they're going through or whatever that doesn't validate the victimhood. Um, and, and there is a subtle art to that. And I think that when you can describe to someone something that's completely true, which is like, hey, I love you and I'm so grateful to be able to have this moment with you or th- to be included in this conversation. And then, and, and I think this is the art, to ask someone's permission to maybe push back on a piece of it. The thing that's cool about asking permission is that someone has the ability at that moment to say, no, I'm not open to pushback. And then you know, <laughs> okay, great. Then, then we don't have to do that. And that's, and, and that's actually okay. Um, to be able to say like, you know what, I actually am kind of precious about this. And so I don't think I am open to pushback on, okay, that's totally cool. Well, just so you know, I love you. And, and you know, if you want to talk again about this some other time, let me know. But I, I like the idea of of giving someone the dignity of asking their permission. Are you open to a pushback on, on just a little piece of this? And then maybe helping them look look at that. There's there's just kind of an art to um to being able to encourage a person without completely signing off on all of their point of view. Well said. Ab- absolutely well said. I think I think that final piece is super important and something worth drawing out of. It is good, almost in all circumstances, to uh, validate someone's emotional experience because it is what it is. Um, there may be very, very limited 
um, situations that that's not the most helpful thing, but as a pretty good rule of thumb, even if someone is being manipulative, even if you know someone is going through a toxic thing, their feelings are their feelings and you can't have a productive discussion trying to negate their feelings because they are the final authority in the world on their feelings. So you're just kind of, you're going to be swimming uphill on that. But in order to accept their feelings, you don't have to accept or validate the worldview that either spun from those feelings or even brought them to those feelings. And uh, to Lee's great point about, about pushing back, about having that conversation, I want to draw one more scenario, which is maybe this is someone you're related to. Maybe it's someone you've been friends a long time or you know, they are coming at this in bad faith. You know, this is a toxic yeah, setup. Yeah. 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 You can still do the validation of the feelings, but if I could summarize what happens, what they want is a, I'm sorry, you're upset. And here's what I'm going to do to make you not be upset anymore. What you want to do is something a lot more like, I'm sorry, you're upset, but here's why this isn't changing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jed, one more thing. I want to build exactly on what you're saying, because I think this is another form of clarity where if people are operating in good faith, you can offer and that people often need. There's a huge difference between offering a solution and offering a form of relief. These are not the same thing. And as the person who's not wrapped up in the situation, one of the things that you hopefully can see is that some situations are not getting fixed anytime soon. Right. Like all of us have worked with people, for example, coming out of jail and, you know, a person's coming out of jail says, you know, I want a job. I want a house. I want a good relationship. I want all this stuff. And the answer is cool. That's going to be about five years from now. Um, if you, if you kind of hang in there and work really hard, it's not going to happen tomorrow. And a lot of problems have that quality where someone's upset, maybe justifiably, and they want this thing fixed and there is no fixing it today. There, there is no solution today. So then the question becomes, what is a healthy and adaptive form of comfort, a healthy and adaptive form of relief that can be offered today so that they can get up tomorrow and keep plugging towards that bigger goal? That's a form of clarity that most of us actually really need. Yeah. It absolutely is, and because apparently I'm going to be the 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 focus on the negativity uh, part of this, which is a job I am suited to. <laughs> I, as I as I flip to that, if someone is on the pity party thing and just not in a state where they want they don't want any relief other than the solution, and in a case of bad a bad faith reading, the solution they want and will yeah, accept yeah. no other. That is also a good piece of information for you to have because. You need to know that they're they're not trying to work towards a solution with you. Um, they are they're trying to get a very particular uh, setup out of this. So you start with the with the concept of we're not doing that. Whatever it is, that's that's not going to happen. What can, what can I validate? What can I be kind about? What can I be gentle about within that? Knowing that uh, this is not going to be uh, the where you're, you're not going to get what you want out of this. So what can we do within that to make you feel? validated to make me feel like I'm being kind and gentle because, and this will actually transition in a couple ways in our next question. It's also not a bad thing for you to want to feel like you were validating and positive in an experience, in an experience. Like that's not a, yeah. you, you want to do it for the other person, but it's not bad for you to want to feel like you handled something well and, and did it in a positive way that aligns with your values when it comes to things like validating people. So with that in mind, let's move on to question two here. Cause I think there's actually 
a lot of overlap, and this may have a scenario where a lot of people are acting in these ways that we're bringing up. The question comes in and says, my partner and I are expecting a baby, and some of our family members are trying to make things about them. It feels weird to declare, quote, this is about us, not you, but it also feels justified. Is there a time where being self-centered isn't the same thing as being selfish? And a, a very cool question, and Lee, I love the way it plays on some of the stuff we're already talking about here because there are some uh, life events, uh, marriage is one, somebody, a family member passing away is one, and babies are one where a lot of people bring some pre-existing weirdness yeah. to your situation, and you've been through this. I don't know about the weirdness part. I mean, everybody has a little bit of it, but you, you've definitely had kids, and you've <laughs> you've uh, counseled a lot of people through dealing with this stuff, so... What what would you tell someone about navigating that thing where you do have to basically boil it down to this is a scenario about one person and everybody else kind of got to take a back seat? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, to put it simply, y- you guys are the parents, no one else is. And yep. you have to communicate that to people because the, and man, especially like, I mean, I think most people have seen this in, in relatives and, you know, in holidays and stuff like that. But, dude, being a pastor <laughs> for 20 years, I can tell you, man, if you don't determine what the boundaries are, everybody will try to raise that kid for you. Everybody will tell you what to do. Everybody will tell you how to do it. Everybody will – they will air out their opinions like you asked for them. They, they will let you know what is right, what is wrong. People are bold about that stuff. And what you have to do is you and your partner have to figure out the course that you're going to take. And oddly, it, it probably feels like you're being self-centered or selfish, however you put it there. What's actually happening is you are putting focus on your child. Um, this is not actually you being self-centered. This is actually you saying the point, the person that's at the center of this whole thing is my child. And so that, that is, we are working in their best interest. Um, that doesn't mean that my partner and I are always going to get everything right. But if you want to be a supportive (laughs) part of our little family and community, then your role in that is to support our choices. Um, this, sorry, my computer just started talking to me. Special guest appearance by Siri by of Siri. Apple. Siri, yes, fantastic. I can't remember exactly what I was saying there, but I think I was on a rant. It was all gold is the main thing. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, sir. Yeah, basically, you are going to have to um, let people know that that their job as a supportive role of your family and community is to support your choices. That may be that may come down to things like how you guys decide to do schooling, how you guys decide to do certain things with nutrition, how you guys decide to do sports and and certain activities with kids. And and when I tell you nothing is out of nothing is there there is no safe space where somebody won't have an opinion. They'll have opinions all the way down to your child's haircut down to your child's uh, matching socks or not, everything, the, the brand of crayons that they use, all of this stuff. Um, this is a big life event for sure, and it's one where you have the right to say, the person that's at the center of this and the point of it is my child, and we are going to make that decision, and everybody else that wants to be a part of this, you're going to have to understand that. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start that off. 
And Jed, I'd love to get you to develop a part of this more for us, because I think we can even take this away from this specific example of a child, but it's a great one because it has a very clear focal point. Um, birth of per- birth of a child is about number one, said child. Yeah. Number two, the mother of said child and the fa- mother and father. And then we're going to move out in concentric circles into a varying levels of irrelevance. Yep. And there's a, it's kind of a rare thing to have something that's focused, but one that we're all familiar with walking people through is a similar one, which is sobriety, Yeah, which everything in this world for this first world has to be about them and their sobriety. Um, yep. There's actually even a, in the sense of kind of self-centeredness as a positive without selfishness as a negative, uh, there is a idea that focuses around uh, 12 separate recovery circles that it's you come in thinking I'm going to do this for my kids or I'm going to do this for my wife. or You can't do this for anyone else. You have to do this for you. 100%. That's the only way it works. So, but even in scenarios where that might be a little less cut and dry, I think a lot of what Lee is saying applies here too of there's nothing wrong with you being the subject of a situation in which you are the subject, even though yeah. we might be socialized to feel like that's always a bad thing, right? There's no doubt about it. Let's let's offer a scenario that will be self-apparent of how ridiculous it would be, but I, I think it's going to speak to this because it's. I think it's easy to get confused. So I want you to imagine that you're having a dinner party at your home, and uh, God forbid someone starts to choke. And on a piece of food, and it turns out you've been trained, you know how to do the Heimlich maneuver, you know how to, how to save this person's life. So you leap up and you wrap your arms around them and you start to, to go to town and, and, and do this. Now think about if all of the aunties and uncles there during this wanted to weigh in on all kinds of details related to the choking related to the Heimlich right to, you know, maybe you could do that in the kitchen. I don't, you know, are we sure he's really choking? You know, I remember one time I was right. choking. It was in Boca. It was great. It was fabulous. You're going right hand over left hand there, huh? I just, I just think you get a better angle going the other way, but, I, hey, I'm, <laughs> but I'm just saying i maybe, I don't know. Maybe you're right about everything. That's fine. <laughs> Okay, so look, we can all see how ridiculous it would be and that in the moment you would be right and no one could blame you for saying you guys need to shut up and then you proceed to do the Heimlich maneuver and save this person's life because in the moment, the person who matters the most is the person who's choking. The person who matters second most is the person who's stopping the choking and at a very distant third category is everybody else. Like, no one would be confused about that. Everybody would get that. Well, if you can dig it, there's there's kind of a similar thing here. There is a new life entering the world. This is a big deal. And at the center of focus is the new life that is entering the world. It is all about this little baby. Because it's all about this little baby, it is therefore next on the priority tree all about whoever the primary caregivers are. So in this case, that's that's you and your partner. But we all it, it needs to be understood. It's primarily about the baby. And then because that it's it's actually about you guys. And I, I want to go back to your question for a second, because a word came up a few times. You said it feels weird to declare this is about us, but it also feels justified. And part of what I want to encourage you on this is don't worry about how it feels. Don't worry about the feelings one way or another. That's good. It is about the baby. It doesn't matter if it feels that way or not. It is about you guys doing what's best for the baby. It doesn't matter if it feels that way or not. 
this is one of those moments to give yourself permission to not worry too much about the feelings aspect because the feelings may lead you astray. And actually, that's part of what the people that are operating in bad faith are hoping will happen is that they can play off of your feelings. To that point, I'll offer one more thing. Some of the people they're trying to weigh in are coming from a good place, even if they're doing a bad job. They just, they're excited. They want to, you know, their over-involvement is part of how they celebrate this great thing. Some people are operating in bad faith. They just want to get up in something and tell other people what to do. Um, The following is not something you need to do. This is extra credit. It is only if you have time and thought and whatever to, to spare. If you can find little ways to give people a job, it will do two things. The people that are coming from a place of good faith will enjoy it and feel will feel good to be included. For example, we need someone to think about a banner to put up in the nursery for when we help welcome the baby home. Jim, could you think about that banner? This is great. Jim has a job now. And for people that are operating in good faith, they will be comforted by that. The people that are operating in bad faith will say, hell no to that kind of, of direction. And that's really useful for knowing where people are coming from. Because it's great to the extent that we have time and energy to try and accommodate the people that are operating in good faith. There's no point in trying to accommodate the people that are operating in bad faith. Yes. And one way you can tell if someone is operating in bad faith with a fairly high predictability rate is if they put two syllables in the hell in hell no. Yeah, that's exactly right. That is almost never going to go well. I was just going to add that when it comes to the daunting task of of raising a child, especially when it comes to someone else's child, I am more than happy to do a very simple task. Like, oh, you would like me to wash these bottles out for you or start this laundry for you while you take care of the baby? That sounds fantastic. These are things I can pull off. And so that's, that's it's like, I, it's the idea that you would not want to be involved at that level is like, come on, man, that, that is, that's showing the world the, uh, where you are. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you, do you think I'm a bottle washer? Is that, is that who I am to you? Is that, I'm just, I'm just the kind of guy that would just wash bottles for you. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, oh, well, some things just became very clear. That's exactly, that's it, yeah. that's it, man. From, from the experience of having been the single guy for a long, a lot of my life, when you get invited to a cookout or whatever, you're going to get asked to bring chips or drinks. <laughs> and initially there's an idea of, yeah. oh, they think I can't, that thing else I can handle. Here's the thing. It's so low stress. Yeah. yeah. You just stop at the store on the way there because you forgot. They gave you this job because they knew you were going to forget, and you did. <laughs> you get your bag of chips. Maybe you get a nice bag of chips, maybe something baked, and you surprise everyone. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's a little victory for you going in there. <laughs> and before we close this out, I want to pick up on, on one thing Jed was saying, which I think was really, really smart there, about the don't trust how it feels. And one way we can we can examine that is by looking at the opposite side because when you're doing actually like really selfish stuff where your self-centeredness is hurting people, it never feels like you're being selfish. Oh, it yes. feels totally justified. And this is what I have to do. And you guys just don't get it. So isn't it if, my turn? That's right. You know, if you're, if you're being the, the eighties guy with the big brick cell phone, who's ignoring his children to take the call that you never actually feel selfish. So don't let people, don't let the idea that it feels like you might be not giving people enough run uh, be the final word. It's certainly something you can look you can look at and examine further. But there are uh, you're you're pushing against a lot of social conditioning and narrative and kind of especially if you're a woman, probably things you've been told about what focusing on you means about you being a good person or a bad person. 
and not putting the needs of others first. There's certainly a time where you want to do that, but there are some times, like for example, if you're growing or preparing to parent a human being, where you really actually do need to focus on you, and that needs to be your first first step. And it's a great litmus litmus test for people in your life about how cool they're going to be about that. All right, we're going to move on to our final question for this episode. It comes in and says, what do you guys make of the recent story about harassment at Christianity Today? Does this just happen everywhere? I know Christianity Today is just a magazine at the end of the day, but I am really discouraged. And a great question. We're glad you wrote in. Uh, if you're interested in finding it for yourself, you can uh, find the articles. It's pretty much around Twitter. It's a little hard to find on the Christianity Today website. Interesting that. Um, I had to scroll for a minute, but it came out on March 15th. It is titled, and if you are not sure what we're talking about, this will catch you up pretty well in the headline. Sexual harassment went unchecked at Christianity Today. Women reported two top leaders inappropriate behavior for more than 12 years. Nothing happened. So that is, uh, that is discouraging. Even if you... Even if you've never read Christianity Today, if you're just Christian, it is totally understandable that you would find that a, a discouraging thing to do. And Jed, I'd love to get you kick us off here because uh, discouragement makes sense. Uh, anger yeah. makes sense. Particularly a lot of people probably have similar situations that happened in their workplace or, God forbid, church uh, community that they were hoping there were places that were better. Um so what do we do with the, there's a recent thing at Hillsong and all that. Yeah, yeah. What, what mental box do we put in, do we attach to the fact that this just seems to keep happening at more and more high profile places? Well, here's my take. You don't have to go with it, but it's definitely what I think. And I can summarize in two words, power corrupts. That's it. That's good. Did you come up with that? I did. <laughs> I did not. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Uh, this has been true since the dawn of man. And I really super need this part to, to be heard. It doesn't matter how Christian the environment is. I think one yeah. of the great one of the great lies of evangelicalism in the United States has been if we take anything and we make it sufficiently culturally Christian, we won't have the problems that the world has. And that is not true. It right. doesn't matter how Christian-y the environment is. And, dude, if you want context for reference from not the 20th century, look at the medieval papacy. Um, if you give people power and there's not oversight and accountability, bad things are going to happen. Exactly what those bad things are depends a little bit um, on kind of the uh, – uh, um, the peculiarities and the specifics of the situation, but it will generally involve money, sex, and violence. Um, those are kind of the, the three go-tos. Uh, but again, power corrupts. If, if you give anybody a sufficient amount of power and money and attention and access, it's going to really tempt them towards weird stuff. Now, here's the follow-up part that it's just food for thought. It's just something for you to, to think about. So I've had, a, a unique life and I've been around a, a fairly wide range of things. And I, I would, it's just something I just want you to, to ponder and consider is that the, all the people that have done this evil stuff, like they, they, they are wrong and like they are responsible for their own decisions and they should be held accountable. And, and there's no question. I don't want you to hear me saying otherwise, but there's actually, if you can dig it, there's another villain that almost never, ever gets talked about. And that is that in most situations, there is technically a form of accountability that's supposed to be there that simply was not doing their job. Mm, yeah. That could be a church elder board. That could be an HR department. That could be an advisory council. 
But in most places, particularly in larger organizations of whatever type, there actually is an accountability structure, at least in theory. And I can't tell you the number of times I have watched people suffer while the board or the council or HR or whatever the equivalent is refuses to act, absolutely refuses to do anything. And so the thing that, that I would say to you to think about is power corrupts. There's no question. If you take, uh, you know, a dude or a woman or whatever, if you take a leader and you give them a ton of power and whatever, it's going to really tempt them. But the other thing that's going on here are cultures where the accountability structure is not doing their job. They simply are not acting because here's the thing about bullies. Here's the thing about opportunists. Here's the thing about charlatans is they have a sixth sense for what they can get away with. They really, really do. And if they're trying to get away with something, it's on some level because they think they can. If they think they can get away with it, it's because the accountability structure that's supposed to be there is not doing its job and is giving them the firm message, oh, you can get away with this. Mm. We, we either won't see or we won't act, but either way, you can, you can totally get away with this. So in all of these environments, as much as the person at the top, again, I'm not excusing anything they did. It was wrong. It was bad. They deserve to be held accountable for their actions. They are responsible. But there's actually a large group of other people that are responsible, too, that probably are not bearing the weight that they should bear because you don't know their name. And this problem is systemic. This is going on yeah. almost everywhere. And as you consider the companies that you want to be a part of and the churches that you want to be part of, the organizations you want to be a part of, I encourage you to look at what their accountability structure looks like and if those people actually do anything. That is a great, great place to start off. And Lee, where would you take it from there? Just that, well, first of all, everything Jed said, that's that's it. That's the whole thing. This is absolutely deplorable. It's absolutely disgusting. It's one, one of the really cool things that's happening with kind of the internet age and everybody having a device that can transmit and reach people very quickly is that it is becoming easier for people's voices to be heard and for for things to be revealed for things to be you know called out and that, that's a really really cool thing there is a there there is a leveling of the playing field in the ability for human beings to communicate with each other at at the speed that we can now, which is, which is a really, really cool and good thing. The deal is, is, and, and this is part of what Jeb was talking about here, but way too many churches, ministries, and so-called Christian businesses have become um, cults of personality. Yep. Where there's the one really neato guy that everybody thinks is really neat. And says really amazing, shiny words. And we're all just entranced. And that was, it was never, like, ministry spaces, ministry, you know, churches, ministries, and then so-called, you know, Christian businesses or whatever. There was never supposed to be this cult of personality. It was always, always supposed to be about serving. Leadership in Christianity was always supposed to be about serving. Whenever anybody argued about who was the greatest, Jesus always took little children in his hands and said, this is the greatest in the kingdom of God. The, the neediest and the person who serves the most and the person who, is, who everybody considers to be the weakest and the smallest, not the coolest, not the strongest, not the most amazing, not the shiniest, not the most beautiful— it's all about, this is a kingdom that's about serving. Jesus' last night with his guys, 
He got up from dinner and he he dressed himself in the clothes of a servant and he washed his guy's feet. And he said, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed. You'll be happy if you do them. It was always supposed to be about exalting other people, that you're supposed to be serving other people and exalting other people, raising each other up, not arguing over power, not being the person that everybody else thinks is neato and amazing. And that's where so many of this, so much of this stuff got started. And one of the weird things is, it's like, it's like when Jed said it's systemic, it's systemic in weird ways. Like yeah. I saw, I saw an article recently about what are people most looking for in a church? And, you know, you might think like, okay, well, if I'm looking for a new church, the thing I'm most looking for is I want to, I want an environment where there's going to be community. I'm going to be supported and have friendship and fellowship. Like that would be a really cool, cool thing to look for in churches. No, what people are looking for, the guy up front talking. That's what they're looking for. That it's the number, it was the number one thing across the board, which surprised me because I thought it was going to be about like, uh, who has the best children's ministry to take care of their kids and, you know, or sometimes it's, it's about music and stuff like that. Nope. They, it's, uh, is there a gifted speaker up front? That's what people want. And when, and when that's what people care about, that's how this thing develops so that you have this person that everybody thinks is super cool. And all of a sudden there's power in this guy's hands or in this gal's hand. And, and it's always guys, but like the, that there's, that there's somebody that everybody thinks is amazing. And then he gets the power. And exactly as Jed said, it corrupts and, and then nobody's blowing the whistle, but it is systemic in strange ways like that, like in, in the, in the sense that even folks, um, who are looking for a church, like there's a perpetuation of this environment, even in what they're looking for in, in, in a church. Yeah. I think that's such a really, really good point. And we, we can tie these two things together and see how that developed. If you spent, if the entire time you've been alive, you've been told that the only thing that makes a Christian thing cool or important is how gifted the guy up front speaking is and how many books he's written and how fast we're growing, then that's the metric you're going to want to judge things by. It's the only metric you've been, you've been given. And that, that ties back into, I want to point on, take a point on the systemic thing really quick. Cause I think it's important to, to dig into, um, to go back to just very good point of there's no such thing as an organization or a person or whatever that is so Christian, they don't need accountability. Yep. That is not the way things are meant to be set yeah. up. And you can see how things have gotten in a lot of trouble that way. And maybe it's not even the person doing it. Maybe it is, as it was in the case of Christianity today, a, it wasn't the CEO. It wasn't the president. It wasn't the person on the masthead. It was somebody doing it. And then over years, we don't know that this happened. It's not in the report, but happens in a lot of other organizations where people who were maybe that person's friend or had come up with them or had the same age and education level and skin color. So they sided with them and said, well, you know, old so-and-so is not really a bad guy. You just got to keep the younger uh, gals away from him and it'll be fine. And no one was holding him to account on that. And no one was holding that leader to account yep. on that bigger thing for a number of reasons. Some of that's institutional failure, but some of that is the idea of, well, why would we ever need an HR policy for sexual harassment? This is the world's leading Christian magazine. Christians don't <laughs> do that stuff. <laughs> right. There's a, a very large, very successful ministry that Lee and I have both done work with. It means a lot to both of us. 
who up until like three or four years ago just didn't have an HR department. Nope. Nope. Hundreds of hundreds of volunteers, hundreds of staff members. Just uh, we never really occurred to us. And and to that point, Matt, they when they finally hired someone, the it was such a daunting thing to try to correct the the steering on this deal that that person they hired lasted about three and a half years and and is already gone. And for all the faults this organization have, and they have plenty because it's a big organization, it wasn't like teetering. It wasn't, you know, teetering on the brink of a massive scandal that was going to take everything down. It was just when you have this many people interacting, you need some rules and some structure yep. and some yep. yeah. stuff just going the on. Normal, just the normal everyday stuff you need accountability on. And it was like completely and totally overwhelming. Yeah. And maybe if you're a person who's going to go to – Maybe it's joining a church. Maybe it's you're going to join a ministry, volunteer thing. Uh, overseas missions have this a lot. Um, you, you might hear a lot of talk about accountability. And maybe one of the things we need to start looking, looking out for is, is this accountability go both ways? Yeah. Who's the person at the top accountable to? Yeah. Because if, if, if you have a, a normal job, if your direct manager does something that makes you feel uncomfortable, there's a process, or there should be. You can report them to a general manager you can fill out an anonymous hr thing you can do that there's a process because that business has to live in the real world where these things happen not bury their head in the sand about it and deal with that and you would think that a system of belief that is predicated on the fact that every individual heart is fallen and there's capability for for evil and inhumaneness and uh, bad treatment within literally every person minus the one guy who's ever lived in equal measure would have some fail safes against this. And we really should. And it's something, again, we don't ever want to put the onus on the individual person, especially if that person is a member of a minority group or a group that's more likely to be victimized. The onus should not be on you. The onus should be on the people who own and run and benefit from these systems to make them better, to make them line up with what they actually say they believe. But as we go through things on an individual basis, if there is a lesson to take from this, it might be when you are looking at a church, a ministry, a job, particularly if it's in the Christian uh, space, those are some great questions to have. What does accountability look like? Who is the guy who's on stage accountable to? Is is there a board? Is there an elder group? Whatever. What does that mean? Who's what are we looking at? How how is this person who's in charge modeling accountability, which they're supposed to be doing? Because you'll hear a lot, again, it kind of runs one way, of people who are on stage or in the boardroom or whatever, telling you that, you know, we gotta drag things out in the light here, y'all. We gotta, you know, you gotta be honest with each other in your small groups and we gotta be whatever. Again. That's actually true. How honest are you being? How detailed is your financial report? Um, how do you take a minute by minute meetings, uh, minute by minute transcripts of your meetings? If not, why not? Do you have a closed door policy? All these things are good to ask. It's not unchristian to ask them. And if anything, in those Christian environments, we may need to be a little extra watchful, which again, I want to point out, we, we want to point out is totally unfair to the person who is the most likely to be victimized. That sucks. That's not the way it should be. But we do want you to be in a position where you can go in with your eyes open and protect yourself as much as you can while hopefully these larger 
um, changes are being made. And the CEO of Christianity Today put out a thing that they're going to try to do better. I'm, that's great. I hope they do better. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. unchristian. Maybe that's unfair. It's definitely the world we live in. So also just because someone is Christian, you don't owe them extra benefit of the doubt when they say they're going to be sorry and do better going forward. Yeah. You can right. wait to see that. We hope you do. We hope it does get better. And we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Say That Podcast. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com. TheBridgeChicago.tumblr.com slash ask if you want to keep that entirely anonymous. Take out the song. This is, uh, it's not entirely related to what we've been talking about, but it is in theory. This is uh, from our old friend, the Pool House Guru. It's a little yeah. bit of a megachurch take on Psalm 24.1. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Except the stuff that's mine, right? Because that stuff is mine. So the earth is the and everything in it Except the stuff that's mine Okay, well, if you say so Earth is the Lord's and everything in it Except the stuff that's mine That stuff is mine There was a rich man and his land produced a hearty crop Himself. What should I do? I don't have any place to store my crops. Hallelujah. Then he said, this is what I'll do. Thank you, Jesus. I will tear down my barns and build bare ones. Earth is the Lord's and all who live in it. Except, of course, for me. Not really me. Earth is the Lord's and all who live in it. Except, of course, for me. Stored away for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Have yourself a good old time. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That stuff is mine. Earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Except the stuff that's mine. That stuff is mine. Earth is the Lord's and all who live in it. Except, of course, for me. Not really me. Verse 13, you can trust me, what I